0: Welcome to the Bible is Lit Podcast, where we explore the Bible as a work of literature. We dig into themes, patterns, motifs, archetypes, and all kinds of crazy literary criticism and interpretation. We also tackle controversial topics from the Bible and riff on listener-generated questions and topics, ultimately looking for that question of what it means to be fully human. Thank you for tuning in to the Bible is Lit podcast. We're back with another episode. Uh, we're covering more ground in our destruction and rebirth unit. Uh, this time, we're going to step into the story of Egyptian captivity, Israel, the young or youngish nation in captivity, um, their escape and attempt at reestablishing themselves as a nation. And so, we're going to dive into that if you. This, this will follow a similar pattern as the Moses and the hero's journey unit that we did, except instead of looking at Moses in his singular arc, his singular narrative arc, now we're looking at Israel as a nation. Um, and so the patterning that we're looking at is the attempted destruction or the destruction of a culture. And in that destruction of a culture, we have the recreation or the rebirth of a culture and a nation and the establishment of a whole new law and a new way of doing life. So let's get into it, Uh, if you have your Bible. uh, Places we're gonna be, we're gonna be all over Exodus for the most part, um, highlighting verses or sections. Exodus, the whole first chapter, we'll look at a section also in chapter six, verses one through 13, all of chapter 14. We'll look at chapter 15 specifically, verses 22 through 27, and then we'll blast forward As the torches pass to Joshua, now leading the nation, and then we'll look at the end of the book of Joshua, and that is in Joshua 24, verses 5 through 13, and so we'll see some similar patterning going on, and so the very beginning of Exodus, like, basically uh, Genesis ends with Joseph Um, bringing his family into israel and establishing them because there was a famine in their family so they were brought joseph becomes a master in the house of egypt his His father and all of his brothers and their whole family, which is, you know, 12 brothers that all had a bunch of kids, you know, so it's a nice little clan of people. They settle in the land. Uh, Genesis 50 verse 26 says, Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed in a place in a coffin in Egypt. And so we roll right into Exodus. After that, and we get the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, right? So we bookend Joseph dying in Egypt, and it's just a reminder, hey, all these dudes came to Egypt because of Joseph with their father Jacob, right? And so each with his household, we have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, um... <coughs> It says in verse 5, the total number of persons that were Jacob's issue came to 70, Joseph being already in Egypt, and Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So we have a whole generation of people dying off, and this generation, you know, theoretically is blessed because they are Abraham's offspring, and they've been worshiping God or the one true God Yahweh, however you want to say his name. All right. Um, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but it says the Israelites were fertile and prolific and they multiplied, multiplied and increased very greatly so that the land was filled with them. So now we have the reversal of some of the results of the fall of Adam and Eve where we see that God says, hey, like Eve there will be pain in childbearing and that doesn't mean that childbirth the act itself will be painful but it's this symbol that means one your kids are going to be knuckleheads and do bad things like kill each other and it also means and insinuates that the fruitfulness of your wombs you will struggle to get pregnant at times you and the generations following and we see that pattern happen with sarah and then later with rebecca but now right the flood comes we have Right, we have Noah, and we have basically some righteous generations, so to speak, that have been following God. And it says, like, in this context, they have been fruitful. And so, we're reversing that curse um, in a way. And it's the children of Israel kind of living out the first commandment giving to Adam and Eve or one of the first commands given to Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply again this is the command that's given to Noah and his fastest sons as they step off the ark into this new world that looks a whole lot like the garden of Eden All right, it says in Exodus 1, verse 7, the Israelites were fertile and prolific. They multiplied and increased very greatly, so the land was filled with them. Uh, Verse 8, a new king rose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. All right, so the generations have died off. Joseph's whole generation, though they have Israelites in the land. But then the king, who is part of this relationship with a foreign territory, doesn't know them either. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are too numerous for us. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Let's trick them. So he's playing the role of the accuser right here. Um uh, let's deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies fighting against us and rise uh, from the ground. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built garrison cities for Pharaoh, um, Pithom, and Ramses. And the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So they kind of issue them tasks, make um forced labor more or less making them their slaves their tax slaves in a way and but it just seems to have the opposite effect as they go to these other places under forced forced labor they just keep having more babies and keep having more babies and now they're in all these different places scattered out um and it's hard to keep up with them so <clears throat> This is where the destruction or the attempted destruction of a culture happens. It's not just in the physical act, it's in the mindset. So now they're slaves, they're being, they're enacting um, in accordance with forced labor, which means they don't own themselves, they own own their own property, they're living on borrowed land and borrowed time, and the king of Egypt gets, issues another edict, All Right? It says in verse 14, Ruthlessly they made life bitter for them with harsh labor at mortar and bricks and all sorts of tasks in the field. And then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, wives, one of whom was Shipra, the other Puah, saying, When you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. But the midwives fearing god did not do as the king of egypt had told them they let the boys live so the king of egypt summoned the midwives and said why have you done this thing letting the boys live the midwives said to pharaoh because the hebrew women are not like egyptian women they are vigorous before the midwife can come to them they have given birth and god dealt dwelt well or dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and increased greatly so there's an ad- attempted genocide on a whole generation but the midwives themselves rebel and then the fruitfulness right it's this this image and this symbol that life cannot stop you cannot stop life you cannot stop the will of god it is going to find a way to happen the how it is going to happen may change according to what the circumstances are but it is an unstoppable force and that is what we are supposed to get out of that symbolically to continue to follow out the motifs and so that's the context of all that it's an attempted destruction of the culture and even though they are continuing to be fruitful and multiply their mindset has shifted from being this sovereign nation to this nation that was one of survival and after a whole generation they were living on land that did not belong to them now they are debtors, now they feel they are owed something, or now they have to owe something, and now they're being forced to do things, which was never the point in make in bringing them over to Egypt in the first place, right? They were escaping a famine. So we move into chapter six, and then we have the emergence of Moses as a leader and the Lord told Moses you shall see what I do to Pharaoh he shall let them go because of a greater might indeed because of a greater might he shall drive them for from his land and again insinuating that like you can't stop the hand of God you can't stop the force the creative force of life itself from moving forward all right and God speaks to uh, Moses here Uh, again Moses is has left Egypt. He was a royalty in the house of Egypt. He was actually one of these baby boys that was supposed to be executed, but his mother hid him. Um, God spoke to Moses and said, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as El Shaddai, but I did not make, make myself known to them by my name. And then depending on which verse you read the name is not pronounced usually in my hebrew bible it just has it written out in hebrew characters and they use the word adonai usually but at that point the most holy of holy names you're not supposed to speak it um i also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. I've now heard the moaning of the Israelites because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I've remembered my covenant. Say for therefore to the Israelite people, I'm the Lord, I will free you from the labors of the Egyptians and deliver you from their bondage. And so again the Lord is trying to keep his promise to give him the land of this heritage, which he gave to Abraham way back in the day. Again, Jacob settled there for a while. There was a famine. They moved, and now um, other things are coming to play. So this is where Moses steps in, and a bunch of stuff happens. We go through plagues. Moses goes through his own Hebrew journey, and then we get to chapter 14. Um, and this is what we have. like Basically, Pharaoh tells... Um, Well, Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, hey, can we go out this way and just worship and offer sacrifices to our God? We're not trying to leave. We're not trying to get rid of you. We're not trying to rebel. We just want to worship our God the way we do. We don't worship your gods the way you do. And the reason things keep going badly for you is because we're not allowed to worship our God. And he says, you know what? Okay, fine. He lets them go do that. And then it gets to a point where... um, Moses like, okay, well, now he's going to push the envelope. Let our people go. Eventually, Pharaoh's like, you know what? After my firstborn son died and all these plagues have come against us, again, a greater might is at work. Yeah, we'll let you go. So Israelites are out. They're leaving. And Pharaoh's kind of like good riddance, but then he's overcome with anger, and he decides to chase them. Um. So it says in fourteen verse five When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled Pharaoh and his courtiers had a change of heart about the people and said, What is this we have done, releasing Israel from our service? He ordered his chariot and took his men with him. He took six hundred of his picked chariots, the rest of the chariots of Egypt, with officers and all of them. The Lord stiffened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he gave chase to the Israelites. As the Israelites were departing, defiantly, boldly the Egyptians gave chase to them, and all the chariot horses of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his warriors overtook them and camped by the sea near Pihaiharoth and before Baal Zephon. Um, all right so they're encamped in front of the sea they got nowhere to go they're boxed in and then we see again similar patterning the red sea or the sea of reeds depending on what version you, you read and when the children of Israel reference it they're encamped along this big body of water they have nowhere to go so they go Into the void, into the chaos, which is what represents or what big bodies of water symbolize. The sea, the ocean, the flood, the waters of first creation, right? So we have Moses and the Israelites standing before the waters, just like Noah in the ark, right? Floating upon the surface of the waters, just like God in first creation, hovering above the surface of the waters. Moses relies on God. He speaks to the chaos and brings order to it and provides a shelter in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this unknown. So what should have been chaotic, what should have been the creation, becomes a source of protection for Moses and the Israelites. They cross over through the red sea and then as they get to the end the waters close upon pharaoh and his men just like the waters wiped out all the bad stuff in the flood and so you see the connection of destruction and rebirth there the attempted destruction of the children of Israel, lead them into the wilderness of Sinai. We have this whole deal going on about them wandering into the wilderness. We're not going to get into that can of worms today, but they wander in the wilderness. But this right uh, attempted destruction of their culture, of their people, of their nation, leads them to another place, which then eventually leads them into Canaan, which is a land that is fertile, has a lot of fruit has a lot of trees has gardens it flows with milk and honey it has vineyards they haven't planted right looks a whole lot like eden so you're seeing how all the symbolism works and it's a thread that runs through the entire bible uh let's look at genesis or exodus 15 we'll look at 22 through 27 um And so Moses and Israel set out from the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur, and they traveled three days in the wilderness. They found no water. Sorry, my page my page just flipped on me. Sorry, I, lo- I like to read this from the hard text. I don't like to scroll on the screen. I'm a weirdo like that. Um, So they came to... Marah, but they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. Um, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed them a piece of wood. He threw it to the water and the water became sweet. And so again, we have a, another instance of Moses with water providing sustenance from them. Again, he throws something into this water, it becomes sweet. Right, just like God putting a river in the midst of the garden, and from it spring four river heads which water the rest of the earth. And if you want to go out and study a motif that's really cool and really crazy, go look at all the instances of Moses with water. His name is even a pun, having to do with relating. To the water, but I want to point out this last thread because we ought to see the connection between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Um, Noah and the flood, and Noah becoming another archetype for an Adam type figure, getting out of the ark as the earth is restored from chaos, and um, stepping into a new earth that looks a whole lot like the Garden of Eden was originally. So we see this. Motif play out and run again at the end of the book of Joshua. Right, so Joshua has, you know, Moses passed the torch to Joshua. Joshua is leading them across the Jordan River, a crossing of the threshold moment, and this is how where they are going, the land of Canaan is described. And so, in verse five. I'm Joshua chapter 24. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with the true wonders. I wrought in your midst, after which I freed you. I freed your fathers from Egypt, and you came to the sea. But the Egyptians pursued your fathers to the sea of reeds with chariots and horsemen. They cried out to the Lord, and he put in darkness between you and the Egyptians. And he brought the sea upon them and covered them. Your own eyes saw what I did to the Egyptians. And this reinforces an old ancient Near Eastern motif that the most powerful God was the God of the ocean, the God that could control the ocean, which again... God, chaos, right? He can pattern the chaos. The chaos of waters answer at his commands. He's the most powerful God, or this idea of the most powerful God is the one who can slay the sea serpent, the sea beast, the beast from the deep, the beast from the darkness, the beast from the abyss. And so, what we're having going on here, we're getting like a little recap of everything that happened with Moses and the Israelites while they're in captivity. So moving on, we're in the middle of verse 7. After you had lived a long time in the wilderness, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. They gave battle to you, but I delivered them into your hands. I annihilated them for you, and you took possession of their land. Thereupon, Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moad, made ready to attack Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I refused to listen to Balaam, and he had to bless you, and thus I saved you from him. And that's a crazy story. If you want to read about A talking donkey and all kinds of weird um, ancient civilization stuff. Uh, Verse 11, you crossed the Jordan, you came to Jericho, the citizens of Jericho, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites fought you, but I delivered them into your hand. I sent a plague ahead of you, and it drove them out before you, just like the two Amorite kings, not by your sword or by your bow. I've given you a land which you did not labor in towns for which you did not build, and you have settled in them and are enjoying vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. So they're in towns, they're in cities, there's this organization, this structure, there's vineyards, right, the wine, olive groves, the oil, right, there's abundance that they did not work for, kind of. Just exactly, same pattern, same metaphors, similar imagery as we see Noah, Stepping off of the ark after the floodwaters have receded, just like Adam and Eve being placed in the Garden of Eden. And so, here they are in this brand new place. They're no longer wandering, so they can establish a home. Everybody that was part of the slave generation in captivity has died off, so now they can start anew. They can start anew. And so this attempted destruction of their culture, of their nation has given birth to a brand new culture and a brand new nation that has just had a brand new set of laws established. And so I hope you make the connection there. Stay tuned as next time we will move into Job as we see this motif of destruction and rebirth or of decreation and recreation play out in the context of an individual person's life. Thank you for listening to the Bible is Lit podcast.